0: From the University of Sydney Business School, this is Sydney Business Insights, the podcast that explores the future of business.
1: When the amazing Daniel Kahneman, the 85-year-old Nobel Prize-winning psychologist, has agreed to grant you an interview, the last thing you want is a problem with the phone connection. Good morning, Professor Kahneman. Hello.
0: How do you do? So you solved your technical problem.
1: So here's a quick heads up that my interview with Danny Kahneman showcases both his superb mind, but alas, also some less than superb sound. But we weren't going to let the opportunity slip away. It's not every day that you get to hear from a Nobel Prize winning intellectual and best selling author. Thank you so much for talking with me today. How are you? (laughs) I'm just fine. Then there was the matter of the Kahneman naming protocol.
0: Oh, my title. I mean, you know, I, I don't use my titles, but, you know, if you want to call me Professor Daniel Kahneman, but I don't really call myself Professor Kahneman.
1: Would you prefer I call you something else?
0: I mean, everybody calls me Danny. I'm not very formal, but I'm, you know, I'm glad to do whatever is convenient. If you want me to call myself Professor Kahneman? I'll do that gladly.
1: Just professor of psychology? Yeah, sure.
0: I'm Daniel Kahneman, I'm professor of psychology and public affairs emeritus at Princeton University.
1: I have to start with Professor Kahneman's reaction to the surprising public enthusiasm for his best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I say surprising because this is a profoundly intellectual book. It is, after all, Professor Kahneman's research into how the human brain thinks and makes decisions. Professor Kahneman conducted much of his research with his friend and colleague, the mathematical psychologist Amos Tversky. Tversky tragically died of cancer at just 59 years. Professor Kahneman dedicated his 2002 Nobel Prize for Economics to Tversky, humbly stating that he considered it a joint prize. Having conversations with my colleagues over the past few weeks, everybody is very excited we get to talk to you and pretty much Every single person I've talked to has read your book, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's been an international bestseller for years now. What do you think has made it such a popular success?
0: Well, I think it appeals to something that is introspectively obvious that everybody can recognize those two ways in which ideas come to mind, the faster way and the slower way. And everything else is secondary, I think. People recognize themselves in that idea. The ironic aspect of this is that the two-system idea is really not my idea. I've just made it popular, and I have given it my own twist, but I took the idea and even the terminology from other people.
1: So how did you make it your own?
0: Well, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And the first hundred pages of the book, which is, I think, more than most people read, but they develop a point of view on the two systems, And I think one of the aspects of this that are the most helpful is the language of systems, which is ironic again, because in psychology, you're really not supposed to explain the mind or behavior by the behavior of little people inside your head. And yet, this is precisely what I do in thinking fast and slow. I have system one and system two. And I picked that improper language very deliberately because it makes it very easy for people to think in terms of agents. Thinking in terms of agents is a lot easier than thinking in terms of categories. Agents have properties, they have characters, they have propensities, and you attribute traits to them very, very easily. And that is, I think, part of the success of the book.
1: At the time you started researching this and you started writing about this, there were different prevailing views of what human nature is and what thinking is like. In economics, for instance, there was a very different view of how we are as people and how we think. Yes.
0: There was very little by way of a field of study of thinking under uncertainty. There were really
1: maybe half
0: a dozen psychological papers. There was a fairly rich economic literature and the literature on the foundations of statistics, which is really about the logic of thinking under uncertainty and the logic of decision-making under uncertainty. And then there was a bridging move that economists adopted, which was to take the logical theory and use it as a descriptive theory of how people actually behave. And that was a very good thing to have around because we could use it as a target. I mean, it's obviously a theory that people are completely rational and completely logical and follow the axioms of utility theory and the axioms of probability theory. And that story is so obviously false that it's quite easy to find flaws in it or to prove it wrong in amusing ways.
1: So how did you come to that realization? Because, you know, we're in a business school here and everybody talks about making data driven decision. And you always say that no one's ever made the decision because of a number. They needed a story. There are so many ways in which human decision making is wrong. How did you come to that realization?
0: Most of the research that Emma Sersky and I did actually happened when there were just the two of us walking around or talking to each other because we would fit problems to each other and to ourselves, and what was amusing to us was to set problems where we had a clear intuition, and we also knew that that intuition was wrong, because we knew the normatively appropriate theory. So that was how we came to the realization that people are imperfect. It's because our own intuitions were imperfect. I was first acquainted with that very early in my life, when I was in my early 20s and serving in the Israeli army as a psychologist. And I encountered there incorrect intuitions, both in my own thinking and in the thinking of other people. So I can give you an example. I was interviewing candidates for officer school, and I noticed that sometimes when interviewing someone, I had a distinct impression that I knew them, that I had sort of an insight into their true nature. But then I also knew enough from the statistics and our inability to predict any criterion that my impressions of knowing the person, that was an illusion. I was just generating it myself. So I coined the phrase, the illusion of validity Actually, when I was 22 years old and serving in the Israeli army, it became a technical term some 15 or 20 years later, but that's where my interest in this began.
1: So how does the illusion of validity come about? The illusion of
0: validity comes about basically when you have a clear interpretation of the situation which is internally coherent and you do not really see any alternative ways of understanding the situation so we tend to be very confident when no alternatives to our interpretations come to mind and this really happens a lot because part of perception and part of impression formation is that once you begin to form an impression it tends to suppress alternative interpretations of the same evidence so We are designed to come up with a single interpretation. This is really the case in vision. And much of our thinking about intuition came from our thinking about vision. And in vision, you see things one way or another way. You don't see things two ways at the same time, or very rarely.
1: How can we overcome this?
0: Well, by slowing down. And you can't overcome it. In general, I mean, you know, we, we think the way we think and we can't slow ourselves down all the time. When the stakes are high, and in the context of a decision with consequences, and typically in the context of decisions on the job and decisions that are made with a group, uh, we call them singular decisions, the important decisions. Then you can do a little better. Then you can make yourself slow down, then you can critique your own thinking, then you can arrange for different parts of the committee to play different roles. There are several techniques for overcoming intuition, and as I now think about it, for delaying
1: intuition
0: until all the facts are in.
1: Do you think there's a good role for intuition to play in high stakes environment? You spoke about working in the Israeli army.
0: I think it's essential for people to be confident in their decisions, especially when they get to the phase of implementation. So when you're deciding, you can be in doubt, but at a certain point you decide and then you have to march on. And at that point, There is really not much alternative for intuition to get a sense of certainty under complex situations. But it's also very important not to reach it prematurely because many of our intuitions come too early and many of our intuitions are wrong.
1: So is the old saying of counting to 10 and then doing what you're about to do?
0: The general advice when you want to overcome problems with what I call fast thinking, is to engage in slow thinking and to do that systematically and carefully and slowly.
1: What do you think are some really good examples of the application of your work? And I'm thinking organizations or government or other implications.
0: I think, for example, one of the starting points in the work that I'm doing now, in the book that I'm writing now, is that people overuse the notion of bias, but actually there are other kinds of error, and in particular the one that we're writing about, there is noise, just unreliability. It's not bias, it's a very different thing, which produces errors. Now people have been quite influenced, and not only by us, but the word bias is in the culture, and there are lists of biases in the culture. You look at Wikipedia, it has 200 cognitive biases. so. Lots of people have, in one way or another, tried to overcome biases. How successful they have been, I have no idea. You know, we have not suggested direct applications. There are a few things where I do know, oh, here's an example. One of the ideas we developed was the idea of the outside view. That is that when you're facing a problem, instead of focusing on the problem itself, you should try to view that problem as an instance of a broader category of problems. And then you should look at the statistics that you can come up with about the outcomes in similar cases to predict what will happen in this particular case. And there are now other people leading the charge on this, namely in particular, a professor at Oxford named Flitbeard. But I think there is a requirement or a recommendation in the American Planning Association to use the outside view whenever a forecasting exercise is required.
1: You talked a bit about noise, and I understand you're writing in that space. Can you talk to me a little bit about the importance of noise and what we mean by it and where does it occur? Well, when you look
0: at the judgments that people make and we start organizations so if you look at underwriters looking at the same risk and now normally the organization has a lot of underwriters and there are many people who can be called on to deal with any particular case that comes by and typically one underwriter will take care of it now what we found in doing research on this is that this is a major lottery that is who the underwriter is that will take the case can make a very large difference to, in effect, the organization will decide because these underwriters have the authority to speak for the organization. And we know that they vary a lot. And that variation is what we call system noise. And there is noise in the judicial system. There are huge differences between judges in the American judicial system in the sentence they will set for exactly the same criminal committing the same crime. So that's noise. And wherever we look, wherever there is judgment actually, there is noise, because judgment is an informal integration of information, and because it is informal, different people are going to do it in different ways. And indeed, We use the term, it's a matter of judgment, when we expect differences. But the reason we're writing a book about this is that the differences are much, much larger than people typically think. So in the insurance company that I worked with, they were completely unaware that they had a noise problem. But in fact, they had a major noise problem. And the same is true in many other organizations. So that's noise. It's just the unreliability of different agents for the organization producing different responses or being likely to produce different responses to the same problem. But there's also noise in individual decisions in singular decisions in the sense that there are many ways in which a decision or a judgment that looks inevitable to the person making it could in fact have been made quite differently and it's quite often fairly arbitrary which decision happens to be made so that's true for both important decisions and more routine decisions there's a lot of noise it's a good topic for a book we think (laughs)
1: it's a fantastic topic for a book Looking forward to reading it. So are there ways in which we can mitigate the effects of noise? I'm guessing we can't eliminate it from our lives, but there might be ways in which we can at least be aware of it?
0: Yes. The best way to eliminate noise is to eliminate judgment. So by using algorithms instead of judgment. And the algorithms have been successful for a long time, and very simple algorithm, I'm not even talking of, of AI where you have nonlinear systems that perform very well. But simple linear combinations of variables do better than people in most judgments. There have been hundreds of studies comparing judgments to simple rules for combining information. And the simple rules beat people about 50% of the time, and the remaining 50% tends to be a tie. So, no question, the best way of getting rid of errors of judgment is to get rid of judgment if you can. Now, if you must use judgment, then you must structure it. Break up the problem. Stay very fact-based and assessing what we call mediating assessment. Break up the problem into facets. Actually, you know, this goes back to my work in the Israeli army uh, 63 years ago.
1: Uh
0: I set up an interviewing system in the Israeli army, which I think might very well still be in use. Anyway, five or ten years ago, it was still in use pretty much unchanged from the way I set it up. And it was an interviewing method. And the idea of that interviewing method was that instead of trying to form an impression of how good a soldier the interviewing was going to be, what you did, you assessed six separate traits by asking factual questions about the current behavior and the current outcomes of the individual, and collecting facts and making separate and independent judgments on separate attributes. And at the end of that process, it turns out when people make an intuitive judgment after producing six separate judgments, their intuitive judgment is much better than it would have been if they had try to go directly to intuition. So that's what I was saying earlier when I said, try to delay intuition because you'll get a better intuition if you delay it. So this is a noise mitigation system, actually. And it turns out we know that structured interviews are more reliable and more valid than unstructured interviews. And so we have a line when we think of important decisions We say that options in important decisions are pretty much like candidates in a personnel selection situation. And the same ideas that work for evaluating candidates are applicable in many cases to evaluating options in decision making. So that's the tack that we're taking on noise mitigation in judgment.
1: I want to go a bit further into how you view the role of AI and of algorithms and of machine learning in this. And you spoke about linear versus nonlinear systems. Do you think there's risk in building in some of the biases, for lack of a better word, that we already have in the data that we feed into these algorithms?
0: I think there is real deep confusion about what we mean by bias in this context, because What there is, I don't think that it is true that we feed our predictive biases into the algorithm. Now, there is bias in life. There are differences between groups, you know, there are differences in how well they do, in what they accomplish. That's just a fact. And now the differences might come about because of discrimination, say, if there are ethnic differences in achievements that could will be because of discrimination. But if your criterion is, say, whether people will be promoted or not, if that's the criterion because this is the way that success is evaluated, then an algorithm will predict that criterion. And if the criterion is biased, the algorithm will be biased. But the bias is in life. It's in the criterion, it is not. That we are feeding our predicted biases into the device. the learning device learns not by asking us what we think, but by trying to predict an outcome in the environment. And now what will typically happen is if the world is biased, that is if say there is a difference between groups in some achievement, then a predictive system will be biased in the sense that it will favor the group that is the more successful group and disfavor the other. And that is not bias. It's just an inevitable side effect of trying to predict a criterion that is possibly biased or any way that discriminates between groups. So I think algorithms are getting a bad rap, is my impression.
1: <laughs> I would agree with you that they are. For instance, you talked about judges making decisions and so on. We know, for instance, some of that data comes from over-policing certain areas. So, of course, you will have higher incidence of crime in areas that you over-police rather than other areas, and it's quite difficult to figure out just how much of that is already built into the ways we see the world. This is a particularly interesting case because it's true that if you're measuring
0: arrests, then there will be more arrests in areas that are over-policed. But then if you ask, why are they over-policed, then it might be that there was more crime there. So there is something that could be self-reinforcing. And if you're measuring by arrest, then clearly you are using not only the problem, but the solution to the problem as part of the criterion, and that can be problematic. But it's a good example, actually, where some bias. I don't know if it's a bias. Well, imagine the following, that an appropriate response to high crime is to over-police, that is to disproportionately police. Then you'll find out that you'll make a lot more arrests when you over-police, including for minor crimes that you wouldn't bother with in other areas. And so there'll be discrimination that way.
1: What's the equivalent of a recourse to a system too in the case of algorithms?
0: We cannot evaluate systems by isolated cases. The only proper way to evaluate a system is statistically. And what is the case is that our attitude, the public attitude to mistakes that are made by people and to mistakes that are made by algorithms, that attitude is quite different. And you know, we'll be much more shocked, we are much more shocked when a self-driving car kills a person than when a person driving a car kills a person. We really hate the idea of algorithms making mistakes that have important consequences in the life of real people. So there is that emotional reaction that complicates things.
1: Where do you see most promise for AI in the future or for machine learning or for algorithms? What areas do you see most promise in?
0: Well, it's developing at such a speed that it's fairly clear that where prediction is involved and there is a good criterion to predict and there is a mass of data, then machine learning is it. That's the way to do it. It's clearly superior to intuition. It is clearly superior to standard statistics. And it's just a matter of giving it enough material and you get spectacular results. Now, there are many domains of life and many domains of thinking and judgment and decision making where AI is not a factor yet. So artificial intelligence does not do causal thinking. Artificial intelligence does not yet do scenario thinking. So there are many areas in which artificial intelligence just is not playing yet. But in the areas in which it can play, Machine learning is simply superior to anything that it competes with.
1: Still some ways to go, but promise then.
0: Well, I don't know if it's a promise or a threat, because the impact of highly intelligent systems on human life is going to be quite problematic. The thing that I find fascinating is the replacement of professional judgment by algorithms. This is happening in medicine. It's going to happen in the law. I mean, it's clear that the medical assistant is going to be a better diagnostician than the physician that it's assisting. That's not going to take much time. This is already beginning to happen, and it's going to be the same in many other areas. And I even have the fantasy of it being the case that machine learning might have better business intuitions than people, so that decision-making at the high level deciding whether or not to merge or whether or not to acquire a company, those fateful decisions that sometimes are taken. I wouldn't be surprised if within two decades or so, there will be programs that do it better than most CEOs.
1: Do you see any risk in that?
0: The main risk I see is that CEOs will resist the implementation of these programs. This is really in part what happened, I think, to decision theory. 50 years ago, formal decision theory, I know that Amos Tversky and I thought that it was going to conquer the world. And many other people thought that decision analysis was going to conquer the world. In fact, there's very little decision analysis being practiced today. And I think the reason is that leaders hated to be second-guessed by decision analysts. You just don't want the problems that you solve by the magic of your intuition and experience to be solved by a technician applying a rule or applying an algorithm, that's going to create interesting problems.
1: But then what becomes of the role of the leader or the CEO? You talked a bit in the beginning about how we yeah. need to tell stories and people believe and follow stories or follow narratives. These decisions will be made solely based on data and there will be a number at the end of it. You know, It's that way because it's seven What happens then to the role of leaders or what becomes of them? That's
0: what I see as the threat. I won't venture to predict anything about social responses and how things will play out. We know that this type of forecasting is effectively impossible. Technical forecasting is possible so that we have a pretty good idea by now, the range of problems to which machine learning is applicable. And so we can predict that wherever it's applicable and wherever there are enough data, that will happen. But what the social reaction to it will be and how people will make their peace with it if they do, uh, that you know, I wouldn't venture to predict. I have no idea. I'm very surprised by the confidence with which some people predict the future because there is ample evidence to show that the future is very hard to predict.
1: Do you think we have any good tools for thinking about the future? What do you use as tools to think about the future?
0: (laughs) I use modesty. Actually, I don't. I make a lot of intuitive predictions, and they're mostly wrong. But my thinking hasn't been modified by the research that I have done. (laughs) But we know about this miserable record of long-term forecasting in science, in technology, and certainly in political and strategic events. So we know that people are able to forecast certain developments, like AI spreading. They're able to forecast short-term developments. And there is all that work that Philip Tetlock is doing and Barbara Mellers on super forecasting, which is very interesting, but it's limited to the short-term, medium and long-term. There are people who claim that they have had major successes, but I'm a skeptic. We can't see around corners. We can see up to the next corner, but that's not very far.
1: Let me take you to one other area that you've made a significant impact on, and I want to go towards more the hedonic psychology side and life satisfaction versus happiness. And you've more recently talked quite a bit about how it is more important for people to be satisfied, to experience life satisfaction, rather than to be, you know, merely happy. Could you share your understanding of satisfaction as distinct from happiness and why you rank satisfaction as more important?
0: Yeah. Well, actually, I don't, so let me elaborate on that. The distinction is fairly clear. I mean, happiness, as I define it, is happiness in the moment. At every moment, there is a particular hedonic level of experience. You're in a good state or in a bad state or somewhere in between. And you can take the average of that or the integral over time And that's a measure of happiness. And life satisfaction is a completely different sort of animal. I mean, it's how you feel about your life when you think about your life. But most of the time, we don't think about our life. Most of the time, we just live. So those are very different concepts of well-being. And they can be measured separately. And it turns out that what you would do to maximize your happiness and what you would do to maximize your life satisfaction are quite different. Now, you maximize life satisfaction by looking for pretty conventional measures. You know, you're know, you satisfied if you're conventionally successful. Happiness is largely to do with people, being with people you love and being loved by people. So there's a real contrast between those two. Now, I used to have strong opinions about this and my strong opinion was that happiness is the real thing and that life satisfaction is just something that people think about their life but after a few years of defending that point of view i realized that i was painting myself into a corner that i was proposing a theory of well-being which is not what most people are trying to achieve because Mostly, people are trying to achieve life satisfaction. They're not trying to be happy. And so it's not that I think that they should look for life satisfaction. I have no view on this. Well, I mean, I have conflicting views on this. But it's clear that what people are motivated by is primarily the stories they can tell about their life. And that's more like life satisfaction. So that's... uh, What I have been saying recently on this is that I think that the focus on achieving happiness is exaggerated, and that the proper focus of society should be reducing misery, and that what you would do as a society to maximize happiness and to reduce misery uh, is really not the same thing, And, and that I believe one is more important than the other, but I've not Having much influence.
1: What do you think is the most important thing we could do to reduce misery, either from a public policy point of view or an individual point of view?
0: Well, thinking in terms of public policy, you want to know where there is suffering and you want to alleviate it. Now, probably most of the suffering at any one time is being done by a few people. I mean, we had an estimate about 10% of people do about 90% of the suffering. I can elaborate if you're curious if you made that strange claim. but Yes, please. Well, you can look at any one time and you have the reports of how happy people were, say, at, at one o'clock. And you're, you're looking at a thousand people. And then you look at two o'clock and at three o'clock and so on. And you can count whether there is suffering or there is no suffering. And then it turns out that of the total amount of people who would check that they suffer over time, that 90% of those checks would be done by about 10% of people. So suffering is really very unevenly distributed in society. And so there are some categories of suffering that are inevitable, like people grieving for a true disaster that's happened. But a lot of suffering is mental illness. So if you want to reduce suffering, A major focus should be mental illness. Here I'm less sure of myself, but there have been claims that loneliness is a big problem for some categories of people, especially widowers, I think. And then that would be a problem that you would want to address.
1: Well, in the US, it's been declared an epidemic by the Surgeon General bigger than the obesity epidemic.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And there is suffering that is caused I suffer problems. And there is a lot of suffering that is caused by poverty. So I would say that the data that we have indicate that in terms of emotional happiness, getting richer or getting higher income doesn't really add a lot to your emotional happiness. But what is true is that if you are poor, you're suffering. You're suffering You're miserable emotionally as well as having for life satisfaction. So thinking about poverty and about the safety net, those are would be implications of the focus of misery reduction.
1: How can we find better ways of talking about misery? We tend to talk about happiness and happiness research rather than misery, just like we talk about equality and empowerment rather than inequality research. Yet in health, we manage to talk about obesity and heart disease, not about centers for fit, healthy people. Yeah.
0: There is a bias in the language. We talk of length and not of shortness. We talk of depth and not of shallowness. There is that bias in the language with one of the directions in those dimensions. And happiness is a marked one. And unhappiness is the lack of happiness. So I think that's a genuine obstacle. But... If people train their mind on measuring misery, they will develop tools that are not the same tools that are used to measure life satisfaction. And if that's your focus, then the first requirement is to measure it. And anything that you don't measure is not going to have enough impact on policy. But things that you measure have a good chance of affecting policy.
1: What have you been lucky with? Professionally,
0: I've been most lucky but you know, working with Amos Tversky was clearly the turning point in my life and it made me what I am professionally. And that was really luck. The luck was that we got along very well and we enjoyed each other's company. And we happened to complement each other so that we found each other at the right time in our careers, and we spent ten or twelve years, you know, working as one. I would say superior mind as a very, very good mind indeed when the two of us were working together. That's luck. Now, you know, we did something with it. But even where we did, there were elements of luck. Many of the things that we did that were the most successful, they were not planned. They happened. And they happened because of a series of accidents. Penny,
1: one Last difficult question is, how do you think about failure in life? Are there any good tools to think about failure? I'm in a business school and it seems all we talk about is success and how to be more successful or how to build on success, how to achieve it. But we really seldom talk about failure. Does your research, your body of work and your life experience have lessons about failure? Actually,
0: the work I've done all my life has been about errors, not about success. So I'm a specialist in sort of short-term, in small failures. This is really my specialty. Now, big failures, painful failures, it's interesting. I haven't thought about that in the same way that I've thought about success being lucky. I mean, clearly, there's a lot of bad luck that causes failures. But there is also a lot of stupidity that causes failures and a lot of bad character that causes failures. So it should be, I suppose, the mirror image of success. That is, there are many opportunities to go wrong. And if you use too many of those opportunities, you're not going to be very successful. And you know, that's the luck, that's the interaction between luck and character. You surprise me actually by your question because Some of my friends, notably Gary Klein, who is a psychologist and who believes in experts and believes in intuition, and he really doesn't like the way I think, except that we're friends. (laughs) Now, he would accuse me of being very negative, of being focused on failure avoidance. And there are quite a few people writing about business. Gary is one of them. I think Phil Rosenzweig is another who object to the line of work that I've been associated with because of its exaggerated focus on failure avoidance rather than on seeking success. So I'm not sure I recognize the situation that you're describing. Clearly, we talk a lot more about success because people want to be successful and they believe that they can be told how to do it, which is an
1: illusion. You mentioned that you've had little failures along the way, and I'm guessing this is experiments?
0: No, I mentioned that I had disasters that was mostly you know, in my personal life, I mean, but I don't think I mentioned many failures. But failures are routine in academic work and in thinking work. I'm not sure whether I'm in a minority. I think I am, but I actually enjoy changing my mind, for example. And the occasion for changing your mind is always when you find that you've been wrong. And for me, this is a real joy, finding that I've been wrong, because that discovery means that I've learned something. So failure and success are inextricably linked in my experience of thinking and discovering that you've been wrong, of correcting yourself. And it's those failures those challenges that make the kind of work that I do exciting
1: I do want to thank you for really your generosity with your time today and the insights that you've brought to so many people you've really made a difference well thank you
0: that's very kind and I enjoyed our conversation
1: links to the books articles and talks mentioned in this podcast are available in the show notes this podcast was recorded and edited by Megan Wedge and researched and produced by Jacqueline Holt
0: You've been listening to Sydney Business Insights, the University of Sydney Business School podcast about the future of business. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Libsyn, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can visit us at sbi.sydney.edu.au and hear our entire podcast archive, read articles, and watch video content that explore the future of business.